Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Spend any time watching television and you'll see the apotheosis of Western medicine, that there's a drug for everything. No question we live in a pharmaceutical culture where every pain, ache, and known and unknown disease has its own pill. It is not only in the physical realm, though. In the area of mental health, depression and anxiety have become a kind of hedge fund for the drug companies. And while we see the occasional pushback to this Western model of drug care, we don't usually see it in the mental health field as psychiatrists push more and more antidepressants. My guest, distinguished journalist Johan Hari, thinks that there's a better way, and he set out to prove it in his new book, Lost Connections. Johan Hari is the New York Times bestselling author of Chasing the Scream. He was twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International. He's written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and other publications, and he's a regular panelist on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. It is my pleasure to welcome Johan Hari here to talk about Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Johan, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jeff. Really good to be with you. It's great to have you here. I want to talk, first of all, about your own personal experience, because really much of this work and and much of your quest came out of what you had experienced yourself, literally from the time you were a young man. Yeah, and I think it's... So I was really driven by these two kind of mysteries. The first mystery is I'm 39 years old. Every year that I've been alive depression and anxiety have increased across the Western world. And I wanted to know what's going on here. Why is this happening? And I wanted to know for a very personal reason, as you say, since I was a kid, uh, I had experienced quite acute sense of like pain bleeding out of me that I couldn't control or regulate. When I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I explained I had this sensation. I was very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me an exclusively biological story. My doctor said, well, we know why people feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you these drugs and you'll feel better. And when I started taking the drug, it's a drug called Paxil, and I felt a really significant boost for a few months. And then within a couple of months, this sense of pain was starting to come back. I went back to the doctor. He said, oh, I didn't give you a high enough dose, gave me a higher dose. I took a higher dose. Again, I felt better. Again, the sense of pain felt, came back. And I was really in that cycle until for, for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose of this drug, gaining a lot of weight, experiencing all sorts of disconcerting side effects. And at the end of it, I was still depressed. So I wanted to understand why it was happening to me, why it was happening to so many other people. So I ended up, the, the Lost Connections, going on this big journey over 14, uh, over 40,000 miles. Um, sit, and I wanted to interview the leading experts in the world on what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them and people who had very different perspectives. And I think the main thing I learned is until I went to my doctor when I was a, a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning... I was just being weak, I needed to man up. And then the next 13 years, I thought it was all in my head, meaning, you know, it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. But what I learned is there are real biological factors that can make you more vulnerable to this. But I learned, in fact, there are nine causes of depression and anxiety for which there's scientific evidence. Two of them are biological, but seven of them are in the way we're living. The, the main causes, the drivers of this epidemic are not largely 
in our heads. They're in the way we're living. And that opens up very different solutions which should be offered to people alongside chemical antidepressants. Explain how you began to, to uncover this, like peeling the layers of the proverbial onion, that as you started to talk to people, as you went on this quest, that you began to realize that there was something else going on here, particularly as it relates to the way we live today. Yeah, there were so many places that unlocked it for me. There was one place, one moment, I mean, I learned a lot from so many experts. There were key moments when things kind of fell into place for me emotionally. I went to interview a South African psychiatrist called Dr. Derek Summerfield. And Derek happened to be in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in, in Cambodia. And the local doctors didn't know what they were. They'd never heard of them. So he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need antidepressants. We've already got them. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day had stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's super painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. Um, and for obvious reasons, it was traumatic. He started crying all day didn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. They said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. He said, what was it? They said that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to be in these fields where he was in such pain and so traumatized. They bought him a cow. Within a month, he stopped crying. He was fine. They said to Derek, so that cow, that was an antidepressant, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that sounds like a joke, right? Uh, I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. <laughs> but what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is support and help to get your needs met. So what I was trying to think about well, is what is the cow for the problems that are causing our epidemics of depression and anxiety? That was really the journey I went on. Was there an, an argument to be made that the reality of modernity in life today was exacerbating some of these chemical imbalances? And was that, that a path that could have been led down at some point? Definitely. So I'll give you an example of one of the nine causes of depression and anxiety I write about in Lost Connections. Um, we are the loneliest society that has ever been. There was a study, there's a study that asked Americans, how many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And it, when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. And Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago is one of the experts I interviewed a lot. Sadly, he died last week. It's a real loss. And, and he explained to me, he had shown in his science that, that, that loneliness causes depression. In fact, being acutely lonely is more stressful than being punched in the face by a stranger. And he explained, think about the circumstances where we evolved. Why are you and I alive? We're alive for one key reason. Our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They were really good at banding together in tribes and cooperating. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. They were a lot better at banding together in tribes. Every instinct we have is to be together in a tribe, just like bees need a hive. You know, and we are the first humans ever to try to live without tribes. And it's making us really unhappy. And I want to think, well, what is the antidepressant for that? 
And, I learned, and one of the heroes of Lost Connections is, so I go through many different kinds of antidepressant and I uh, tell the story of an amazing doctor called Sam Everington. So as you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey accent, I'm British, although most of the research about the book is about the US. Um, so Sam Everington is a doctor in East London, one of the poorest parts of London. And he was really uncomfortable. Like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants, but he was giving them out and he could just see they were giving some relief to some people, but they weren't solving the reasons why they were depressed and anxious in the first place. He decided to pioneer a different approach. A woman came to him, who I got to know well, called Lisa Cunningham. Lisa had been shut away in her home for seven years with crushing depression and anxiety. Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was just kind of dirty scrubland. He said to Lisa, what I want you to do is turn up twice a week. I'll come and support you. I want you to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people. And we're going to turn this scrubland into something beautiful. The first meeting they had, Lisa was physically sick with anxiety. She didn't know how to talk to people for so long. But they started, one of the things that was so striking about the group is they had something to talk about that wasn't how miserable they were. They started to learn gardening. They started to put their fingers in the soil. There's a lot of evidence interacting with the natural world as an extraordinarily powerful antidepressant. They formed a tribe. They got to know each other. They did what human beings do when they form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. One of the people in the program was sleeping on the public bus. Everyone else was outraged. They managed, they started pressuring the local authority. They got him a home. It was the first time they'd done something to someone else in a long time, and it made them feel really good. It, as Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. Everywhere I went in the world, from Sydney to San Francisco to Sao Paulo, I saw this. The most effective ways of dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that are dealing with these deeper underlying reasons why we feel so bad. Now, a lot of those problems are caused by, I would say, kind of extreme forms of modernity, but I wouldn't want to go too far. It's not like Lisa still lives in the modern world, right? She hasn't gone to, gone to become a hunter-gatherer in the Amazon rainforest. She's still living in the modern world, but it was dealing with one of the kind of ails that modernity seems to have brought to so many of us. One of the aspects of this, particularly as it relates to all this information you've uncovered, is the self-perpetuating nature of depression. The depression itself leads to further isolation and exacerbates the depressive situation. Yeah, I wouldn't want to overstate that because I think it's, that, that's definitely true and there are real things going on there. But <clears throat> I think it's much more responsive to wider factors that trap us rather than our own brains that trap us. So I'll give you an example. I notice lots of people I know who are depressed and anxious their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I start to look at, well, how do people feel about their work? There's a very good study by Gallup, the most detailed study we've got, found 13% of us, 1%, 3%, like our work most of the time. 63% of us are what they call sleepwalking through their work. They don't like it, they don't hate it. 24% of people fear, hate, and dread their work, right? So it's like, whoa, it's 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of the time. Could that have some relationship with, with you know, our depression crisis? And I started to look for the evidence on this. I discovered there's an amazing Australian social scientist called Michael Marmer, who discovered in the 1970s the key factor, not the only one, but the key factor that causes depression at work. <clears throat> if you go to work 
and you have low or no control over your work, you are far more likely to become depressed. You're also far more likely to die even of a stress-related heart attack, right? And this relates to something that connects so many of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections. Everyone listening to this program knows that they have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need clean air, you need shelter. If I took them away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And our culture's good at lots of things, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these underlying psychological needs, for example, at work. And I go through in Lost Connections ways in which, as a society, we can give people back more control over their work. And, and that is a really powerful antidepressant. The scary part about all of this is that so many societal elements today seem to be moving in exactly the counter direction to what, what is helpful to this. There seems to be greater isolation, concern about work, particularly as more and more artificial intelligence takes over more jobs. The evidence in terms of what's actually happening from a societal point of view is, is pretty scary when one looks at this paradigm for depression and anxiety. We're facing big challenges, and these causes are deep. But, you know, one of the reasons I'm very optimistic about this is I'm a gay man, right? In the book, I tell the story of a friend of mine called Andrew Sullivan. Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive in 1994. <clears throat> His first thought was, I deserve this, because he'd been raised in such a homophobic culture. And Andrew decided to do what he thought would be the last thing he'd ever do. He went to Provincetown in Cape Cod, and he wrote a book about an idea that he thought was completely crazy and utopian, but maybe generations down the line, someone will pick this up, right? The idea he wrote the first book about ever was gay marriage. Um, and when I get depressed about this, uh, and I have the thought that you just said, which I do have sometimes, I try to imagine going back in time to 1994 and saying to Andrew, okay, you're not going to believe me. 26 years from now, A, you're going to be alive. Good news. <laughs> B, you're going to be married to a man. C, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to quote this book that you're writing now in its finding, making, every, making it mandatory for every state to introduce gay marriage. And I'll be with you when the next day you are invited to the White House by the President of the United States. And by the way, the, that White House will be lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag mm. to celebrate what you've achieved with all these other people. And by the way, that president, he's going to be black right? That would have sounded like the most ludicrous science fiction you can ever imagine. It happened. It happened because enough people banded together, um, appealed to the love and compassion of other human beings, um, and didn't give up, right? And I think that one of the things, you're right that a lot of these trends, not all of them, but a lot of them are going, and I talk about some causes of depression and anxiety, like childhood trauma, where I actually think we're moving in a more positive direction. But some, a lot of the causes I write about that are driving up depression and anxiety are increasing. It's one of the reasons why average white male life expectancy has increased in the United has decreased, sorry, in the United States for the first time since the Civil War, because of these deaths of despair, things like suicide, um, opioid um, overdose and so on. Um, and and but but it doesn't have to be that way. And the fact that all the alarm bells are going off, the fact that the crisis is so great in one sense at least means that it's hard for anyone to deny this is a deep underlying crisis that needs more than just 
more people to be drugged. Now, chemical antidepressants play some positive role for some people. This is Lost Connections is very much about expanding the menu of options available to people. I don't want to take anything off the menu, but we've just got to be honest. The last 30 years, we've had a growing depression crisis. Every year we've prescribed more drugs and every year the crisis has continued to grow. There is something deeper going on here that is driving this deep unhappiness that's driving the depression crisis, the addiction crisis, I think the political crisis in many ways. Um, and we've got to deal with these deeper causes, which is about reconnecting. I uh, think back to that story about the cow. It's about helping people to get their deeper psychological needs met. And it's important in that story. It's not the doctor said to that guy, hey, buddy, you've got to sort this out, right? It's all on you. No, they intervened to help him. What depressed and anxious people need is support, more support and more love, not less. In the past, you've written extensively and you did a, a very well-received TED Talk about the subject of addiction. Talk a little bit about how your work in understanding that helped in setting some of the framework for what you're writing about now. I don't think I would have had the confidence to go on this journey and learn this very different story about depression if I hadn't gone on this journey about addiction for my previous book, Chasing the Screen. We've had a lot of addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not, not being able to. One of the things I learned for Chasing the Screen is how much I had misunderstood what addiction actually is. And so if you'd asked me when I started doing the research seven years ago, what causes, for example, heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you're an idiot. I would have said, well, heroin causes heroin addiction, obviously. We've been told this story about addiction for 100 years um, that, you know, if we kidnapped 20 people off the street outside your studio and we injected them all with heroin every day for a year, every day for a month, sorry, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason that there are chemical hooks in heroin. Their bodies would start to desperately kind of physically crave and, and that's what addiction is. But actually I learned that while this chemical hooks are real, they're actually a quite small part of the picture. One of the people I learned this from was an extraordinary man called Professor Bruce Alexander in Vancouver who did this really important experiment. So this idea we have that addiction is caused just by the chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. Your listeners can try them at home if they feel a bit sadistic. <laughs> you take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always die within a few weeks, right? So there you go. That's our story. That's where it comes from. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander looked at this and said, well, hang on a minute. You're putting the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing to do except drink this drugged water, right? What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they can have loads of sex, anything a rat wants in life, they've got in Rat Park. And, and, and what's fascinating is they've, of course, got both the water bottles in Rat Park, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They don't use it very much. None of them ever used it compulsively. None of them ever overdosed. There's lots of human examples that I can talk about this, but what this shows is when rats have the things that make life meaningful to rats, they don't want to anesthetize themselves all the time. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And I think, I don't think I would have had, you know, I was very committed to the idea that my depression was just a chemical imbalance in your brain. Because when you have a story about your pain and your distress, even if that story doesn't work very well, it structures how you think about the world. It's like 
it's like your depression is like a wild animal and at least it puts a leash on the wild animal. You know where it is, right? You've got some understanding of it. And I really felt like at the start of this journey when I started researching this, like, like it was very threatening. Like it was like letting this animal off the leash to adjust to my story, to realize while the biological factors are very real and I write about them in Lost Connections, they're not the biggest drivers of why we have this epidemic of depression and anxiety. Um, but I think it was because, precisely because what I learned about addiction, the chasing the scream, and I write about more in Lost Connections, I realized once you change the story, it opens up a different set of solutions. So, for example, Portugal had a massive drug problem. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin in the year 2000. I spent a load of time there because what happened is they decided in wake of this and having learned about Rat Park and all the other evidence, they, they, they decriminalized all drugs. They took all the money they used to spend on screwing up the lives of people with addiction problems by arresting them, shaming them, punishing them, stigmatizing them, jailing them. And they spent all that money instead on turning their lives around. And the result was there was an enormous fall in addiction and overdose deaths in Portugal. Um, <clears throat> so again, it was seeing, oh, if you, if you change the story to a more truthful and complex story, that opens up a different set of solutions. So really with, with, with lost connections, when I talk about these nine causes of depression and anxiety for which I could find scientific evidence, that opens up kind of very different kinds of antidepressants, which not just chemical antidepressants, but interventions that really reduce depression and anxiety that I learned evidence for all over the world. Do these interventional approaches, do we know, do they work better in trying to stave off depression and anxiety early on, or are they just as effective when they're brought in later in life? I think that's an important question, so I'll give you a specific example. In the early 1970s, the Canadian government did this really interesting experiment. They chose a town, they seem to have genuinely chosen it at random. It was a town called Dauphin, it's about four hours out of Winnipeg in, in Manitoba. And they said to a huge number of people in this town, from now on, we're going to give you a guaranteed basic income. So it was 12000 We're going to give you in monthly installments the equivalent of $12,000 in today's U.S. money. There's nothing you have to do in return for it. And there's nothing, um, there's nothing you can do that means we're going to take it away from you. We just, you're a citizen of our country. We want you to be secure, stable, and have a good life. And this was monitored by a brilliant scientist called Dr. Evelyn Forger, who I interviewed, to see what would happen. And loads of interesting things happened. But to me, the most important was that it was done for three years. There was a massive fall in depression, anxiety, and other mental health problems. Depression and anxiety that was so severe that people had to be shut away in hospitals fell by 9%, right, in just three years. Remarkable fall. And, and I think that tells you something kind of both obvious and profound. We already knew, you know, more than half of Americans, because of the tremendous financial pressure they've been put under, have not been set aside, able to set aside $500 for if a crisis comes along, right? Now, there'll be lots of people listening to this show who are in that position who've been made, and a lot of my relatives, who've been made profoundly depressed and anxious by that. And yet, if they've gone to their doctor, the odds are they've been told their depression and anxiety is just due to a problem in their brain, right? Now, it's really important to say to people, firstly, your pain makes sense. You're not crazy, right? You're, what's happening here is your needs for things like security are not being met and that there are interventions that we can fight for together as a society that will 
that will deal with this cause right now of course were there still people in Dauphin who became depressed of course there were this is one cause even if you deal with that cause it won't help absolutely everyone obviously but it did really measurably reduce depression and anxiety and I think so there's there's um uh, I don't know if there was a breakdown in where, in, ter- in the research in terms of you know people who'd had depression for a long time versus people who were developing it more recently, but it did lead to, even with severe depression, a really marked um, decrease. And how has the medical community viewed this? What pushback, if any, have you found? Well, it's important to say, not on every point, but the broad contours of my book is completely in line with, and in fact representative of, the, the view of the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, who explained in 2011, social health, uh, sorry, mental health is produced socially. It is above all a social indicator. It requires social as well as individual solutions. The leading doctor at the United Nations last year explained that we need to talk less about chemical imbalances, more about power imbalances. So lots of doctors have been really positive. Uh, the best-known psychiatrist in Britain, Dr. Max Pemberton, has raved about it. Um, uh, the former head of the British National Health Service Medical uh, um, Medical Health Mental Health Services, Dr. Geraldine Strathee, has been hugely positive about the book. There's been some people, some other doctors who, uh, who, to be fair to them, admit they've not read the book, but who've who've uh, seemed to think that what I was saying was kind of everyone should stop their anti chemical antidepressants and throw them away, and that's very clearly not what the book says. The book says if you're taking chemical antidepressants and, you know, for you, the benefits outweigh the side effects, you should carry on taking them. So I've been kind of arguing against a case I don't make. Um, but yeah, the, the response has been overwhelmingly positive, and not just from them. I mean, a really broad range of people have, have responded really positively to the book, from Hillary Clinton, it's the first book she's endorsed since the election, to Tucker Carlson at Fox News, the opposite end of the <laughs> political spectrum, who called the book wonderful. Um, not someone whose politics I generally share, but I'm, I'm really interested to speak to his audience. Uh, to people like Glenn Greenwald, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Elton John, Russell Brand. So I've been really thrilled, and I think, I think that's because... People can sense there's something not right in what we've been saying and doing about depression up to now. It's not that the things we've been doing are necessarily bad. They do help some people. But that we've been missing big parts of the of the picture. And, you know, there was this thing was discovered about depression in the 1970s that, to me, is so representative of where the debate has gone wrong. This thing was discovered in the 1970s that was so inconvenient that it had to be brushed under the carpet. So the American Psychological Association, the APA, had decided for the first time to standardize how depression was diagnosed in the United States. So what they did is draw up a checklist of 10 symptoms of depression, kind of obvious things like crying all the time, uh, feeling worthless. And they sent this list of 10 symptoms to doctors all over the United States. And they said, if any of your patients show more than five of these symptoms for more than two weeks, you should diagnose them as depressed, mentally ill, do what you can to help them, right? So this list goes out all over the US. Um, but within a couple of months, psychiatrists came back and said, look, we've got a bit of a problem here. If we use this checklist, we have to diagnose basically every grieving person as mentally ill, because if you lose someone you love, you're gonna show these symptoms, right? So the APA got together and they're like, <clears throat> that's clearly not what we intended. So they created something they called the grief exception or the grief loophole. Basically said, uh, use this checklist to diagnose someone as mentally ill unless someone they love has died in the past year. 
In which case, it doesn't count. That's not what we meant. Don't diagnose them as mentally ill. So doctors started using that, but that raised a really awkward question. Doctors, some doctors started to come back and say, well, hang on a minute. You've told us, we're meant to tell our patients that depression is just a brain disease that you identify on a checklist, except in one unique situation in life when actually you're not crazy if you feel this way. But why is someone you love dying the only circumstance where that's true? What about if you've lost your job? What about if you've lost your home? What about if you're stuck in your job, a job you hate for the next 40 years, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly, the loophole meant that you had to think about the context of the person's life, the social forces that were playing out in the person's life. And as one of the leading experts on this, Professor Joanne Cassiatore said to me, the system just isn't designed for that, right? If you were going to start doing that, you'd have to have a whole system overhaul. So the APA just got rid of the grief exception doesn't exist anymore. So now if your child dies, you can be diagnosed really rapidly as mentally ill as you carry on crying, you know? And 9% of grieving parents are diagnosed and drugged in the first 48 hours after their child dies. And I think that tells you something really profound about how we don't understand pain and suffering in this culture. If someone you love dies and you're grieving, that's not a pathology, that's not a sign of craziness you're grieving for a very good reason, right? You love them and they're gone. In a similar way, depression is not a pathology, right? And depression is a sign that your deeper needs as a human being are not being met. It's a kind of grief for your own life. And what you need is love and support to turn your life around. Not to be told that it's just a kind of malfunction in your brain, it's just a chemical imbalance. Because the, the biggest problem, of course, there are real factors that are going on in your brain when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out of depression. I write about them, have a whole chapter about them in Lost Connections. Uh, those biological factors are real. But that happens in the context of your life, right? And, and, and what we need to do is deal with the wider factors why this depression and anxiety are increasing and help individuals to do that. Johan Hari, his book is Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Johan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, I really enjoyed talking to you, Jeff. And I should just say, anyone who wants any more information about the book can go to www.thelostconnections.com where they can take a quiz to see how much they know about the real causes of depression and anxiety and they can listen to audio of loads of the amazing people that we've been talking about. Johan. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Johan. Much appreciated.